0: Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back again. If you are a first time listener, welcome to our OITE review series. This is something that we're doing for getting ready and preparing for the orthopedic in training exams. But we also do have our weekly orthopedic surgery um, topics, So feel free to tune into those. And um, so without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at it a couple more times, but I I, I understand, you know, a lot of this from, from us talking about it. So uh, strong work, strong work that may get somebody an extra point or two on the exam, you know, get you get you another uh, percent up. So very good.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And um, just moving forth. So what are what are some of the main differences? And you kind of just. Briefly touched on this uh, when we were finishing up, but what are some of the main differences between normal aging and osteoarthritis in articular cartilage? This is always tested, or I've definitely seen questions on this. So, everybody, please uh, pay attention here.
1: Yeah, it it definitely will be talked about because there there is a difference. It's, I mean, osteoarthritis is still technically a uh, a disease. It's it's something that can it's a change from the norm and it's just, it's strange how it happens. It's strange what it does to people because I mean, there's people who have gone, have lived 90 years and they don't have arthritis, but there's people in their forties that do. And so it's, it's not that osteoarthritis is a normal aging because normal aging is different than arthritis. So, um, and that's a key distinguishing fact between, uh, in talking to patients too, because they might have one knee that has horrible arthritis, but one knee that looks very good on X-ray. And if it was just a part of normal aging, you would expect both knees to be the same. So um, when you were talking about normal aging, normal aging, the water content of the cartilage is actually decreased. Um, But in arthritis, because you have a breakdown of the extracellular matrix, water can more freely enter the extracellular matrix. So you have an increase in water in arthritis decrease in aging. Um, The Young's modulus or how stiff the structure is, is increased in aging, but decreased in arthritis. And As you guys go through your rotations and as you are learning from your attendings and you're looking at the joint surfaces during your arthroplasty rotation, really look at the the cartilage, at the arthritis, and you'll see a difference between an aging joint and an arthritic joint. And I've found this most notable in the patella. So when you guys are in your next joints case and you uh, reflect the patella out of the way, push on the articular surface, and you'll see that it is very soft. It's like a sponge. And that's true arthritis, whereas articular cartilage and aging will be more rigid. And that's Mm -hmm. the Young's modulus. And then um, the glycosaminoglycan ratio will be opposite of each other in normal aging versus arthritis. So normal aging has a high keratin to chondroitin sulfate Ratio, whereas arthritis has a high chondroitin to keratin sulfate ratio, and that's why a lot of these um, over-the-counter like arthritis medicines or joint medicines will uh, advertise, oh, um, there's chondroitin sulfate in this, and that's because we, through research, have shown that there's more chondroitin sulfate in the arthritic cartilage, so they uh, want to kind of key into that fact and, and give you more of it, but it's actually opposite of what it should be, if that makes sense. So, um, aging has high keratin arthritis has high chondroitin.
0: Wait, so say that again. So we're saying that for, for aging, like normally you have a higher keratin sulfate to chondroitin, but with arthritis, you have more chondroitin to keratin, but you're saying when you're getting the medications that they advertise for more, um, more conjoitin for arthritis yeah. medications.
1: Yep. So they, so these, uh, like, um, these medicines will, um, uh, like at, at GNC and I apologize to any people from GNC who <laughs> happen to stumble upon this or those for like, uh, I think it's like osteobiflex is another one, um, on the container, they'll say glucosamine plus chondroitin sulfate. And it's, it's like, well, for those that have arthritis, they already have an excess of chondroitin sulfate. So they don't necessarily need more chondroitin sulfate, but because we've shown that in studies that they do have conjoined sulfate as a as a product of it then they're going to sell that to people saying oh this is this is found in the articular cartilage so because you have diseased cartilage you need more of it but it's really not the case it's it's the actual breakdown of the collagen and destruction of the articular cartilage that isn't going to improve with it over-the-counter medicine basically
0: mm. so I, I, that because and then my next question would have been well should they be putting keratin sulfate since there's less keratin in arthritic knees but that's not necessarily that would necessarily um help huh
1: yeah i don't it, i don't because it's not like we have cells in arthritic cartilage that can repair at it all it's not it, it it's just the nature of the cartilage it's, is that's just what happens with arthritis. But if we had a way to create the actual structure of the uh, collagen fibrils and uh, produce more strength in the cartilage, then yeah, it, it might be useful. But because the scaffold has been destroyed in uh, arthritis, it's, none of that stuff is really gonna prove useful for, for these patients
0: hmm interesting very interesting yeah i'm looking at uh some of these bottles now i just googled some maybe a lot of them will have uh glucosamine chondroitin i wonder why it works. i wonder well because uh, you know a lot of people use and say it works so i don't know Must, some, 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 something's going on there that, that's above <laughs> yeah. my uh that's above my head right now
1: <laughs> so so we'll, we'll continue on with uh uh the orthopedic residents and uh pre- uh not pre-meds uh the med students applying into ortho their their favorite topic is the uh is the muscle um so what are the contractile units of muscle
0: yep so it's going to be called a sarcomere um so these are going to be the contractile units seen in myofibrils otherwise known as muscle but a sarcomere is the unit and how are these sarcomeres arranged
1: they are arranged into bands and lines and um, we'll have, uh, it, it's tough to talk about the bands and lines when you don't have a picture in front of you, but we'll, we'll briefly go over them. Um, but a sarcomere, the contractile, the individual contractile unit of a myofibril that you just said is from one Z line to the next Z line. And in between those Z lines, you have different bands. And what are those bands and what kind of filaments make up those bands?
0: Yeah, so you're going to have thin and thick filaments. So, you know, uh, the thin filaments are going to be actin and the thick filaments are going to be myosin. Um, <laughs> I forgot to put my uh, my notes here uh, to remember some things. Uh, but anyway, so the, the thin filaments are going to be um, actin, which is going to be your eye band. And then your uh, your thick filaments are going to be myosin, uh, which is going to be your H band. And uh, the note that I put here to remember that myosin uh, is a thick filament. I put you're looking my so thick today. So myosin <laughs> is a uh, is a thick filaments. And then um, for acting the I band, I put kind of like AI rotators. So. Um, that is that that is to know that but yeah one of the big things the easier thing to do is to uh is to look at a picture like i'm looking at a picture now um and it'll it'll you'll see the uh, the eye bands you'll see the actin which is a thin filaments, um you'll see the the myosin um you'll see the z line to z line which is an entire sarcomere unit um, but just if you take a look at a picture that may help because sometimes I've seen it where they like to show a picture, and they'll show you. They'll point to something, or they'll point to this region. You just need to know what is what. But if you remember that the the sarcomere unit is from Z line to Z line, Uh, if you remember that the uh, that the myosin is going to be the H band, and the actin is going to be the I band, that may help. Uh, but
1: yeah and and also look so look at the pictures to understand it from a conceptual standpoint but more commonly on a test, it'll be a histology slide. So also look oh, yeah. at the histology and make sure you understand what uh, the I band, the a band, the H zone, the Z line, all of these things make sure you know what they look like on a histology slide as well because they won't show you the nice frank netter picture of it they'll show you the the electron micrograph slide of this then and you need to know the the actual histology of it
0: yes for sure and um and moving forward how does muscle contraction occur
1: so the muscle contraction is uh, at the kind of big picture is when the myosin grabs a hold of the actin and flexes down on that hinge that we've seen in all of our biology and physiology classes leading from high school up to pre med and into med school. Um, but uh, to go over all that again, because it will come up on exams, is um, acetylcholine diffuses across the synaptic cleft and it binds to the muscle uh, membrane receptor. Um, And this is, we're talking about acetylcholine, like from a, from a nerve impulse to the muscle. And then what that is going to do is it's going to depolarize the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The sarcoplasmic reticulum has a bunch of stored calcium, which is going to release the calcium into the uh, kind of intracellular space, and this calcium binds with troponin. It shifts the tropomyosin molecules to expose the myosin binding sites on actin. The myosin crossbridge forms, and then the contraction occurs. And ATP is actually not used in the contraction process of the myosin, but it's used to release the myosin head to get ready for the upcoming cycle. Um, That is a lot of information in a very short amount of time, but key points (laughs) to remember are acetylcholine starts the whole thing and binds to the muscle membrane receptor. The sarcoplasmic reticulum releases calcium that then starts this this cascade of binding to troponin, which shifts the tropomyosin molecules to expose the myosin binding sites on the actin. The myosin can then attach and contract, and then ATP attaches to the myosin to release it to get ready for the next contraction, started by more of the calcium pouring out from the sarcoplasmic reticulum uh, throughout this whole process. Um, But we have ways that can kind of stop this muscular contraction from happening? Um, And what is one of those injections or medications that kind of prevents this process used in like kids with cerebral palsy or other uh, hypertonic uh,
0: states? Yeah, so that's going to be a botulinum A or kind of at Botox, which is going to be used for spastic, uh, spastic muscles, just like you were saying, you know, kids with cerebral palsy and, and different uh, muscular disorders. And again, that functions by blocking the presynaptic acetylcholine release. Uh, one of the other things that was uh, always brought up when we were talking about kind of this acetylcholine release and different uh, medications is a, is a disease, myasthenia gravis, and that is where you actually just have a shortage of acetylcholine receptors. So again, Botox is going to stop the presynaptic acetylcholine release. Myasthenia gravis is actually where you have a shortage of the acetylcholine receptors. Now, what type of muscle contraction is most efficient to build muscle strength if we got some strong muscle guys or or strong muscle ladies on here that are listening they're trying to get some gains uh what type of muscle contraction should they work on uh
1: the eccentric contraction which is muscle lengthens while contracting and i get it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense a good thing is that if you've made it this far and you're listening to this podcast there and you are an orthopedic resident um You've probably heard this so many times where you're like, I can't believe they're talking about this sort of stuff because it makes total sense. But uh, an eccentric muscle contraction is um, one of those parts of the lift that isn't the same throughout. So, for example, an eccentric muscle contraction for the bench press is when you are starting at the top with your arms extended and you're lowering the weight down to your chest whereas the concentric contraction is when you are uh, pushing that bar up to lock your arms out. But then different from that is like a lat pull down. The eccentric contraction is when you are actually at the bottom of the lift and you have the bar underneath your chin and you're slowly raising it back up to start your next rep. So just know that it's, it's when the muscle is lengthening. Um, the downside to the eccentric part of the uh, contraction is that's also where many injuries occur. And most commonly it occurs at the myotendinous junction. So it's a high risk, high reward sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, But um, when you do muscle strength conditioning workouts, does the number of muscle cells increase or does the actual fiber itself increase
0: yeah so the cells do not the the number of cells don't increase but the fiber itself does kind of hypertrophy so the the number of muscle cells do not increase the fiber uh the fiber does so and what are the different i think this is not a high yield thing but what are the different types of muscle fibers so you have
1: type 1 type 2a and type 2b Type one is the slow twitch. It's uh, the uh, first loss without rehab. It's the ones that are activated first. And it's the kind of the endurance one. So it has a high uh, mitochondrial density. It has a great blood supply. It's more uh, anaerobic metabolism versus Or it's more aerobic metabolism and not anaerobic metabolism. Um, but the key thing, and the thing that it will be tested on is they will tell you, Usain Bolt is at the line and the gun goes off. What is the first set of muscle fibers that are recruited? And even in the sprinters, uh, it's always going to be the type one slow twitch fibers are the first to be recruited. And then the type two A and B, which are the fast twitch muscle fibers are recruited second. So um, type two A are fast oxidative glycolytic and type two B are the fast glycolytic. So type one is oxidative, type two A is oxidative glycolytic. So it's that intermediate can do both aerobic and aer- anaerobic metabolism and then type 2b is anaerobic metabolism only or glycolytic um so what's the uh, primary energy source used for the first 20 seconds what what's the only energy source that y- usain bolt uses when he, when he runs?
0: <laughs> it's going to be the atp creatinine phosphate system so again first 20 seconds it's using straight atp creatinine phosphate now, after that, so from the from 20 seconds to about a uh, two minutes or 120 seconds, that's where you get a kind of transition into the lactic anaerobic system. And then after that, with our long distance marathon runners, that is when you get to transition to aerobic metabolism. So kind of replenishing ATP through oxidative phosphorylation. So just to repeat. If you are Usain Boltz or Tyson Gay or any of these quick sprinters doing 100 meter or Tyreek Hill, if you like football and you know he's a fast 40 guy, he is using the ATP creatinine phosphate system for the first 20 seconds. Um, For 20 to 120 seconds, if you're running a 400 meter race on a track, you're also going to get some of that lactic anaerobic system. So anaerobic, but if you're running a mile, uh, you better breathe because you're going to get some that's going to be aerobic metabolism. So again, you're replenishing that that ATP through oxidative phosphorylation. And I just want to reiterate that if you're just like you're saying if you're saying you're saying bolt and that gun show, that gun goes off and you're getting out of the box, the type 1 slow twitch fibers are activated first and then that you know type 2, and then those type 2 fibers. Um, now, say for example, you are Usain Bolt and you run and you uh, strain or tear your hamstring, which I think he did. Uh, how does that actually, I think in his last race he did, which sucks. but how does yeah. that um, how does that strain muscle heal?
1: So uh, just like when he, with any other healing process, you have an initial inflammatory phase and then you get the TGF beta uh, mediated fibrosis. So in that initial inflammatory phase, You get these, the satellite cells that are within the muscle, they're, they're kind of there to rebuild the muscle when it gets damaged. Um, They're the most responsible for muscle healing. And uh, then you, um, the downside is that um, if you get a mid-belly laceration of a muscle, um, which is different than a strained muscle. I mean, you might strain your muscle running away from the attacker, but then if they catch you and they slice your muscle in half, uh, mid-belly laceration um, recovers only about half of the muscle strength. So a strained muscle can actually recover most of its strength back, if not all of it. But if you have a true mid-belly muscle tear and you have the fibrosis at the end it's not going to be a very efficient muscle it's not going to have great strength so you're only, probably only going to get about half of that muscle strength back but to know that it's it's just like any other thing healing inflammatory phase with later fibrosis yep. um, and then uh moving on to some some nerves and then we'll get into some tendons uh how is a nerve like a peripheral nerve organized
0: yeah and so you have your your axon which is just kind of the the nerve itself you know you you know you have your axon and then that is going to be surrounded by a myelin sheath and then on uh, after that you have an endoneurium um and then once you have you know you have a bunch of fascicles and then you have perineurium which surrounds the fascicles and you have epineurium which surrounds everything so like you If you're a long-time listener to this um, podcast, we have an episode with Dr. D where we talk over peripheral nerve repair. And one of some of the techniques is kind of an epineurial repair uh, because you're grabbing that epineurium um, layer. So again, epi is going to be that outermost layer. The axon is going to be surrounded by myelin sheath. Those groups of fascicles are going to be surrounded by the perineurium and the epineurium is going to surround everything. Now, does myelination make the nerve signal move faster or slower?
1: It makes it move uh, faster by basically insulating the nerve so that the uh, nerve signal can jump from node to node as it goes all the way down uh, the, the nerve. So myelinated nerves are faster and uh, thicker myelin is faster because it provides more insulation for the nerve for the, uh, signal to jump from node to node. Um, but, uh, when you have a peripheral nerve injury, what is the order in the loss of function after this injury?
0: Yeah. So our, um, our, the nerve specialists or the, the hand and upper extremity specialists hate this question because, because uh, it doesn't necessarily always go like this. Um, but they ask us the test questions. So we're going to say it just so you know. But again, if you want to learn more about this, uh, you could listen to the episode with Dr. Christopher D. But as far as for test purposes, I'll just go ahead and say because this, this is how it's tested you lose motor first. And you lose uh, sympathetics last. So the order is motor. So you can't move too much. Um, proprioception, touch, temperature, pain. And then you lose sympathetics last. Again, so motor first. And then when you return your function, it's going to be the opposite. So motor is going to be last. But the first things to return are going to be your sympathetics and your pain. And then temperature, touch, proprioception, motor. So again, lose motor first, comes back last. And what comes back first is sympathetics, but it is lost last. Now, when we talk about nerve injury, there are different types of, um, of, of regenerative or degeneration uh, when we talk about nerves. So what is Valerian degeneration?
1: Yep, well, Valerian uh, degeneration is a form of uh, degeneration and healing. Um I think that the epineurium has to remain intact for this to occur, so it can't be a through and through complete laceration. Um, I hope I'm saying that right, but what what it is is basically the axon distal to the level of injury undergoes uh, degeneration uh, via macrophages and Schwann cells and and everything just kind of eating up that nerve distal because it's been disrupted and proximally it doesn't have to change because it's, it's healthy. Everything he- proximal to that is healthy. So the distal aspect undergoes this degeneration and then it uses your body uses that internal scaffold to help recreate the nerve um, from a kind of distal to proximal extent. And this, this, uh, type of process, the Wallerian degeneration initiates fairly soon. It's, it's about 48 to, uh, 96 hours after the, the, uh, the nerve is injured. Um, so it's, uh, and it, and it does work. You can see these nerves come back, but it, like you said, it, it comes back kind of in a sporadic way, but motor is typically the last one to recover. And so that's why we always test like the, eip uh for like a radial nerve uh palsy and it once they have eip come back that's the last muscle innervated and that's that's when we can say oh the the nerve has regenerated
0: yeah um, i always say you give somebody a thumbs up that's the last thing like hey doc we finally did it and thumbs up that's how you remember eip yep
1: yeah. and then uh we we covered this a little bit in our very very first podcast, I believe, but uh, to go over this again because we're covering some nerves. Um, what is neurogenic shock?
0: That's wait. Actually, I think I messed that up. So EIP is going to be when you point at somebody. I forget what EPL is. Yeah, EIP point is it. pointing at somebody. So um, yeah. There, there are some there's some uh, future hand surgeons that heard me just say that and just cringed <laughs> <laughs> so uh i i i correct myself though for those listening um so eip is pointing at somebody um i think it's eip and epl are the last two like i remember saying like you pointed somebody and give them a thumbs up but anyways that's besides the point uh so neurogenic shock yeah we did cover it i think in our first um maybe our very first or second episode talking about trauma but this kind of is a type of shock that occurs after you have like a cervical spine injury or cervical or upper thoracic spinal cord injury and the uh, big things to know of how you see these on the on the labs and the vital signs these are going to be patients that are going to be hypotensive but they're also going to be bradycardic you know if we remember back in medical school way back in the day that one of our uh, responses to hypotension is to kick up the heart rate via the kind of sympathetic system, the sympathetic nervous system, and one of your responses is going to be tachycardic. But these patients that are hypotensive and have neurogenic shock will actually be bradycardic. Now, what type of, you know, switching gears a little bit, um, what type of tissue are tendons composed of?
1: So, tendons are going to be uh, primarily uh, collagen, making up 75% of the dry weight, and most of that collagen is going to be type 1, and the other very small component of it, about 5%, is going to be type 3. So, uh, 95% is type 1, 5% is type 3. And then you ha- you still have those proteoglycans, which help kind of provide structure and, uh, um, of stability to the to the tendon itself. And I, I mentioned this molecule before, uh, and for some reason, I have no idea why, people love to test it. What is decorin?
0: Yeah, decorin is going to be the most predominant proteoglycan that's gonna be found in tendons, and what it does and how it works is it regulates the tendon diameter. Uh, it transfers loads and it forms crosslinks between fibers. And they, yeah, you're right. They always ask this. I don't know what, what, like, why this is so loved. Uh, why this um, uh, proteoglycan is is so decorated? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, but decorin is going to um, regulate the tendon diameter, transfer loads, and form crosslinks between the tendon fibers. Now, what is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, and we talked about these, these sulfates and these proteoglycans and, um, and these different things, but what is agrican? Uh, just like
1: decorin, they love to test agrican, um, and it is a, a large proteoglycan that forms these kind of m- uh, macromolecular aggregates with hyaluronic acid um, via an interaction with a link protein. And they, the key part to know about this is AgriCan aggregates water. It brings water, it attracts water, and it can actually attract up to 50 times its own weight in water. So um, it helps keep the scaffold of collagen and other matrix molecules inflated uh, with, by providing structure via water infiltration. It allows cartilage uh, to dispense the contact forces evenly to the underlying bone, and it's also present at tendon compression points. And so uh, this Decorin and Agrican, just know it. They are going to be the kind of questions that they're not going to trick you. They're just going to say, what is Agrican or what provides the Greatest diameter to tendons, and you just have to know that aggrecan attracts water, and decorin is what regulates the tendon diameter. Um, and then we also talked about keratin and chondroitin sulfate. What are these two guys?
0: Yes, yeah, so these are these uh domains, and and both of these make up domains in aggrecan. And if you Google a picture of aggrecan, and you'll see like the you know these big link link proteins, and then you'll see these little domains. Um, and that, and, and these domains, um, uh, keratin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate are, are made up, uh, in agrican. So they both have a high charge density. Um, so you, they have, they have a high degree of hydration for the proteoglycan agrican uh, which leads that affecting cartilage and intervertebral body discs to resist compression under load. So big things to know. These are these gag rich domains that, um, that make up domains in agrican. They both have a high charge density and they have a high degree of hydration um, for this proteoglycan. And this leads to the effect in cartilage and intervertebral body discs um, to resist compression under load. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you have not already, share this with one other person. and Please go and leave us a review in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, however you listen to us. And we will see you next episode.